welcome to the Plant Rich Podcast, where we enter together into the web of life in all of its many seen and unseen dimensions. I'm Erin Schrader, owner of The Rebel Herbalist, and it is my honor to hold this portal to the other world. Let's enter, shall we? meeting with the other monks in the monastery that I have recently been initiated into. So you may remember that I've been pursuing um, sort of a spiritual life in the Gnostic Celtic Church, which is the religious order that comes out of the ancient order of Druids in America which is a revivalist Druid practice. Um, If you have more questions about that, you can listen to my podcast episode called The Revival of Druidry or something like that. I can't remember all the names. (laughs) Um, But one of the conversations that came up with my brothers and sisters in the monastic community was the question of good and evil. And that is pretty clearly defined, actually questionably clearly defined in Christian theology as either being in accordance with or disobedient to the will of God. And every church and denomination and sect has their own interpretation of the will of God. But out here in the fringes, out here in the hedge, it is not so clear. What is good and evil? Do they even exist? Are they some sort of subjective human relativism? Or are there actual sources of good and evil in the world? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna muse on that a little bit here today as a druid and a mystic, how I see good and evil. I received a missive from a podcast listener after my 100th episode last week. I often receive emails and um, Instagram messages and Facebook messages from listeners, and I look forward to them so much. I just love hearing your experiences with the podcast, um, answering your questions. And this listener took the time to answer the questions that I posed in the beginning of the 100th episode. Those questions about how are we in relationship to one another? Have I comforted you? Have I inspired you? Have I offended you? And this listener shared with me how difficult it can be to hear what feels like a politically motivated tone to my messages and how that can be sort of a tension in the listening experience for this listener because they are projecting that I may be on the other side of the aisle or the other side of the issue and how to this listener that worry that they may be on the other side of the aisle translates to what I might think of them, that I might think they're a bad person, an evil person, 
And I was so moved to read about that, what that might feel like. And I know what it feels like to me um, when those kinds of divisions and beliefs start to infiltrate a relationship. And it, again, boils down for me to this othering process that humans have shaped our cultures around um, for as long as we know about, for as long as we have record of, that at least cultures in the West have shaped ourselves around scapegoating, around finding an enemy and then edifying our own tribalism around our rejection of that enemy and protecting what we have from the enemy who would take it. I talk about this a lot in the episode, um, Baneberry and the process of othering and through other episodes too. I really, this is a topic that comes up for me again and again and again. And in my lived experience, in my contemplative journey, in my nursing work, in my community organizing and volunteering for nonprofits, in all of the ways that I have been in community with other humans, this particular, um, I want to say aptitude, it feels like an aptitude. We have a real skill for othering this particular ability to other and then feel righteous in our othering is how evil manifests most often in humanity. And then that evil, when we start to say yes to it and we start to allow it and we start to organize around it grows into bigger and bigger evils that we justify through this lens of protection, safety, guarding against the threat that we systematically dehumanize. And it does not matter what side of the aisle we are on politically. That is always evil when it leads to dehumanizing. And the more fierce our methods of dehumanizing, the more evil can take hold. I also believe that the way we treat those of us who are, are acting out of evil impulses, who are hurting others, who don't believe that they have humanity or don't care about their humanity, people who actively are predators towards those who they would take power from, whether that's women or children or other, you know, whoever, whatever way a person dehumanizes to the point of violence and predation, the way we as a society treat those violent people says everything about who we are as a people. That a society built on vengeance is a sick society. But a society built on justice is constantly working toward demonstrating our own humanity, even to the worst of us. 
because that focus on demonstrating our humanity is what changes everything. And the more energy we put into vengeance and retaliation feeds that evil of othering. And the little um, bloodlust that we feel from what feels like vengeance that is actually empty and shallow and just leads to more need for that kind of energy. This might sound Pollyanna to you or idealistic or um, naive. And yet it is a perennial wisdom that is a thread in all of the wisdom traditions that we know of throughout the world. What the sages have said, those who have committed their lives to understanding what it means to be human and to do that well, they tell us over and over and over again how we have to look for these impulses inside of ourselves recognize them when they are present and not participate in them, not allow them to hijack the conversation, the interaction, the relationship. And we've gotten that wrong in some cases. It's led to repression. It's led to self-flagellation. We've just turned the othering on ourselves. It's led to this sort of Um, non-human transcendence where we see the body itself as the other, the physical incarnation itself as other. So instead of doing the hard work of showing up in relationship in a way that recognizes these baneful tendencies in ourselves and working on them, we just remove ourselves from the world so we don't have to face them, which doesn't solve anything. It's only through the mess and the chaos of feeling these things come up in ourselves in relationship, seeing how they work in ourselves and in others and not saying yes to them, that we start to build the kind of stamina that will change the way we do things here. It is a radical message, radical in its simplicity and deeply confronting to truly believe that there is no other. Not that we are all one in some way that absolves us of individuality or identity or personhood, but that whatever is going on for any of us is going on for all of us. And whatever we do to anything, we do to everything is an echo of the old alchemical saying, as above, so below, as within, so without. All things are connected. And we know that as magic workers, we know that the energy connects everything, that everything is an emanation of that one energy. And so when we use the energy given to us, the power bestowed on us for vengeance, We are calling in vengeance, the energy of vengeance. We are manifesting a vengeful world. But when we call in justice, that feels really different 
we will all feel vengeful from time to time. That's part of this experience of being human. I feel it. I know that. But I am careful not to act on it. Because when we put something into action, when we embody it, we are manifesting it. The real beauty of humanity starts to show itself when we confront one another with our truth, our sense of justice, our need for accountability. And between the two polarities of differing of opinions and views and outcomes, a third something is born. This is how everything emerges in this place. Two polarities create the emergence of a new thing, a third thing. Some say one plus one is three. And in many ways that is true. That is the Trinity that is so sacred to my Druid ancestors and so sacred to my Christian ancestors. And we've been duped, in my opinion, by the forces of evil as they uh, craft this othering that we do into thinking if we just cut off the one, then our one is enough. That other one over there, the opposite pole, if we can just eradicate it, then all the power will be ours. Everything will be fine. That's not true, though. If we cut off that one and eradicate it, then we're left with the world created from manifesting the othering, and another one will manifest. Another pole to press against, and it will, it will be endless. Just like Gandhi said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. It, there will always be another reason to be vengeful, another counterpoint to fight, another uh, threat to our security. And that's how it's been for all these thousands of years. One other after another other after another other to eradicate, to oppress, to oppose, to, to shut down, to annihilate. And that is how it will always be unless we choose something else. I'm not someone who believes you can kill this impulse. Even this belongs, even this evil, this desire to scapegoat, to select uh, someone weak or someone distasteful, maybe who doesn't look the way you wish the people looked or whatever, and then to cast all evil on them and eradicate them. I don't think this impulse will ever go away. It's part of how we're wired here for good or for ill. And I do think it's possible to generate collective will to recognize that impulse and call it out when it's happening. For us to become wise enough to say, oh, we're being hijacked by this inclination, this desire to project our own fear outside of ourselves onto a group and try to destroy it. Instead, let's recognize, oh, we've encountered a polarity. And by confronting that polarity in a structure of safety and boundaries, there is possibility here for the emergence of something new. That we are in the hotbed of creation now.
when we feel ourselves confronted by the other, we have just stepped onto holy ground. This morning in my therapy session, we were talking about some repressed memories I have of childhood from uh, likely sexual abuse and how pervasive this experiences children being abused by an adult. In the United States, one in four girls experience sexual abuse. That's 25% of us. That figure is one in 13 for boys. This is a pervasive cultural problem. And why? Where does this come from? My therapist asked me, what do you do with this information? How do you hold this? I said, I hold it as the expression of a sick society that people are so in need of power that they exert it over those who are powerless that we as a people have not created a safe container for power to express itself. And so it is taken. And along with it is innocence. Innocence is taken, perpetuating the cycle. Instead of seeing my abuser as other, as needing to be eradicated from this earth, as needing to be tortured, as needing the retaliation against this person inside me there's a part of me that wants that of course but what i really want is for us to understand how this pattern happens what happens to people that make them prey on children what are we doing wrong as a society that creates the conditions for this and this is not taking responsibility away from the perpetrator. These predators, when they're caught, need to be punished. That is justice. They should not be in a position to ever do that to another child or another person. And that is empty and shallow unless we figure out what is happening here. Unless we hold ourselves accountable as a people, as a culture, to recognize that we are all complicit in this in some way because of its pervasiveness. What are we all agreeing to that is creating this kind of imbalance in people? And how can we confront that together? That is the hotbed of creation. The discomfortable, that's not a word, the uncomfortable, messy, often gross, hotbed of creation to approach the mind of the predator, not as other, but as one of us. What have we done? How does this happen? We could say the same thing about those who go into schools and shoot children or concerts or movie theaters. What have we done that has created this kind of retaliation they are us we are them 
We cannot other them and say, oh, that w- my child would never do that. I would never do that. Because then we cannot understand our complicity. We cannot understand how we are contributing to what creates these people who are us, who are our children. And that is what makes miracles possible. When we stop dehumanizing and othering and we start to say, yes, I am capable of evil given the right circumstances. What are those circumstances? And how can I prevent anyone in my community from having to endure those circumstances? How can I do the work required in my community to make sure no one is so desperate, so unloved, so othered, so ashamed, so disempowered? And if they are, how do we protect people from them? How do we recognize them and protect the innocent from them? It's only when we can acknowledge that they are us that we can start to make progress. And so if you're listening to my podcast and you think that maybe I disagree with you on policy, or maybe we think that there are different ways of reaching our goals, that's good. We should think differently. We should experience the world differently. We should have different ideas about how to get where we're going. That is all well, and I don't hate you for yours. You hold a key that I need to see the world more fully, and I hold one for you. That is how this works. And there is evil within me, just as there is within you, with the definition of evil being the desire to other dehumanize and eradicate. And I believe that that impulse will always be there. So how can we more deeply understand it so that we can protect ourselves and each other from it? institutionally and personally. It is pretty clear that as humans on this planet, there aren't many bumpers. (laughs) We're allowed to screw things up pretty much as much as we want to. (laughs) So we are up, it's up to us. We are accountable to create the bumpers. What will they be? These are the questions I think are worth asking and talking about and striving toward more questions, deeper questions, richer questions, and recognizing that those of us who are influencing children We can say to them anything we want. 
but the energy we embody in their presence teaches them far more than any words in our mouths. So the way, the way that we energetically encounter people we perceive as other, the way we energetically encounter obstacles is teaching the next generation the patterns of behavior to live into. I watch the doe with her fawns and she is showing her fawn how to survive with her behavior. What behaviors are we embodying for the next generation? What are we showing them? We can say all kinds of enlightened things, but what are we demonstrating for them? To further support my work, please consider joining our community at patreon.com slash the rebel herbalist. Here you will find plant herbaria, deep sharings about the journey with plants and people, and a space for you to ask your questions and share your own journey with the plants. If you're not able to join us on the Patreon community, and you still want to be in support of our work, please consider sharing this podcast with others or liking and following our pages on social media, Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much for tuning in for all of these 100 episodes. We are so grateful for your support. Thank you for joining me for the Plant Wish Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Schrader. I'm an herbalist, a mother, a holistic nurse, and a practitioner of the ancient ways. You can connect with me between episodes at therebelherbalist.com or on Instagram and Facebook, The Rebel Herbalist. Thank you for joining me, and it's time to come back to life.